have just sung that we will gladly toil and suffer. And yet so much of that is so foreign to the people of God. Not the toiling and the suffering, but the gladly. And yet, oh God, it is, it is, I think, true of all of us that if you would simply stay close to us, if you would see fit, O oh God, to walk close with us, we would do anything gladly. Father, the thing that we long for most is a, is a relationship with you where, there, where we sense that intimacy and closeness. And we know what it means to walk away from you. We know the, um, the disasters that we've created by moving far away from the path of righteousness. And so, Father, we do indeed sing with other truth. Gladly, gladly will we toil and suffer if you will but walk close to us and allow us to walk close to thee. Father, it's our sin that separates us from you and we come to confess it. We are a people who understand that uh, if there's a distance that we sense, it wasn't a distance created by you. It was created by us. A distance that we chose to create because we chose to sin. We chose to, to dishonor you. We chose to, to disown you even at times. We've chosen to love things that we shouldn't have loved. We've chosen, oh God, to establish as important things that are foolishness. We've rearranged schedules and priorities that would eliminate your influence from us. And so, we wake up one morning and wonder, why the distance? It's because, O oh God, we've chosen to walk from thee. Forgive us, O oh God. Our souls are burdened. And I pray that a sweet sound of sandaled feet will be heard as he moves among us as that Galilean moves among us to proclaim forgiveness today. Might forgiveness be the, the very thing that we walk out of here sensing? That grace once again has reigned. Where there was sin, there was greater grace. And might your people sense that we have been covered by blood, Emmanuel's blood. Our Father, we do continue to pray for our nation. She is a nation that continues to quiver. A nation that wonders what is right to do and how much to do it and how to do it. And I pray for our president, our dear brother. And I pray that you will steer him, O oh God. Guard him from excess. Guard him from foolishness. Guard him from bad counsel. And might his choices be firm and sure. Not as we react to having had our schedules violated, but that we react as a nation against unrighteousness wherever it exists, even among us. And might the church of Jesus Christ hear a clarion call to a posture of repentance as we seek to return to that place of a humble reliance upon the thrice holy God. And now, Father, accept our gifts. They are small they should be much larger. Expand our hearts to match 
the heart of a gracious God. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. The Second Chronicles, chapter 31. And we're going to interrupt for a couple of weeks the study of the book of Judges. And I want to read to you this morning the entire chapter of Second Chronicles 31. You follow as I read from that which is in the inerrant and infallible, inspired Word of God. Second Chronicles 31. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God, it endures forever. I hope you noticed that as our text began in chapter 31, verse 1, <clears throat> it began with these words. <clears throat> now, when all this was finished, I wondered if you were paying close enough attention to realize, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, a minute. What is this? What is the this that was just finished? Um, this chapter 31 is referring to something that just concluded. What is the this? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you what the this was, but to do that, we're going to have to look at chapter 30 because the this is explained for you in chapter 30. But we're not going to read chapter 30, but if, you, if you'll keep your Bibles open and, um, and, and just kind of follow with me rather rapidly, you'll get an idea and a sense of what the this was that was just completed. And I want to do that. I want to set the stage for chapter 31 by hurriedly telling you what has just preceded chapter 31. Now, notice in chapter 30 now, we're in chapter 30, verse 5, um, Hezekiah and his advisors decided, they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, <coughs> pardon me, from Beersheba to Dan, <coughs> that they should keep the Passover, because it hadn't been done in a long time. So the king and all of his associates and all of his advisors get together and say, listen, have you realized that the Passover hasn't been kept here since the days of Solomon? So therefore, we're going we're gonna to keep it. We're going to proclaim Passover and we're going to resume its observation right now. And so they um, <clears throat> send out, in verse 6, the runners. Then the runners went out through all Israel. What they do is they, they uh, write down a proclamation, put it into the hands of some peoples. They go all throughout Israel to announce that Israel is once again about to observe the Passover, which hadn't been observed for centuries. So uh, their invitation is listed for you or mentioned for you in verse 8. Uh, now, do not be stiff-necked as your father's word, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which is he is sanctified forever, and serve the Lord, uh, God, that the fierceness of your wrath may turn away from you. So the invitation in the hands of the runners is proclaimed all over Israel. And interestingly enough, notice the response of the people in verse 10. So the runners passed from city to city throughout the country, Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them and mocked them. That is, the initial response of the people is, <laughs> we hadn't done this for centuries and we don't have any appreciation of it being resumed, therefore get out and leave us alone. But notice in verse 11, nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So apparently it appears to me as if a minority of the people say, oh my, this is something that we ought to observe. Let's hustle our families together and let's move towards Jerusalem so that we can enjoy the Passover that has not uh, been observed in centuries. Now, the majority laugh and mock, but the minority respond to the invitation and come to Jerusalem. Then in verse 13 of chapter 30, 
Now many people, a very great assembly, gathered in Jerusalem to keep the feast of the unleavened bread the second month. And they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem. Verse 15, then they slaughtered the Passover lambs. The Passover commences with blood being shed. And lots of it, according to verses 15 and 16. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priest sprinkled the blood. Now, at that point, something very, very interesting occurs. Or at least, it, um, it comes to light. If you'll notice in verse 18, chapter 30, For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. So these people have come to the Passover, but they're ill-prepared. They have not ceremoniously cleansed themselves in preparation for the Passover. Yet, they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. Passover is being offered. People come from all over the country. They're not ready to, to take it, but they participate anyway. But notice, keep reading in verse 18 of chapter 30. But Hezekiah prayed for them. Um, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. The Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And look at verse 20. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Hezekiah, the king, this king, begins to play the role of a mediator. The people have come to the sacrifice not clean. They have participated in a way that they should have never participated. Hezekiah, realizing that, takes that issue to the Lord and says, Lord, could you possibly forgive them? And the response of the Lord is, yes. In response to this prayer of the mediator king, the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. There was a great sin, but there was greater grace to cover that sin. And then, in response to that grace that they've just experienced, notice what breaks out in verse 21. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness. Ladies and gentlemen, great gladness will always be the result of a taste of grace. Keep reading in verse 21. Not only are they glad, but we're told that the Levites and the priests praise the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. Those of you who have cribbles with drums, you ought to go take a look at this text, you know. Uh, it was lots of praise, lots of loudness. I love loud things. In fact, um, when I went to um, um, Promise Keepers, they were selling all these t-shirts, and the one t-shirt that I purchased was Real Men Sing Loud. That's the one that I, you know, have the most affinity towards, as you can imagine. But the, but the point is, ladies and gentlemen, these people have tasted grace. And notice what's going on in their souls. Great gladness, lots of singing, lots of praising, and they're doing it loud because they are so caught up in this thing called grace. Look at verse 22. Not only are they praising, but we're told at the end of verse 22, making confession to the Lord their God. Grace has brought joy to their hearts as well as conviction of their sin. And there is confession of sin. And then in verse 23, we're told something very, very odd. The whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. They are 
so much caught up in this thing known as grace that they say, could we do this some more? You see, ladies and gentlemen, once people have tasted grace, they can't get enough of it. Can we have more of this? Let's extend this worship service for another seven days. How about it? And so they do. And if you'll notice, and I, and I know I've already said this, but look at verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. There is great... There's not just gladness. There's great gladness. There's not just joy. There's great joy. There's not just singing. There's loud singing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I prayed this morning that somehow the Holy Spirit would allow me to take this to the level that it should be taken and no further. But can you for a moment just existentially transport yourself into the scene? You are caught up with a bunch of people who are so glad that they have tasted grace and are forgiven of their sin. There is such great joy that they're clamoring for more and more. There's a bunch of loud instruments around them and a bunch of people praying and singing and dancing and having the best old time. Because I even hate that term, best old time. They are so engaged because they have tasted grace. They've experienced forgiveness. And they simply can't seem to get enough of it. Now, ladies and gentlemen... All of that explains the this of 31.1. Our text opens when it says, when all this was finished. When this elongated, extended celebration of Passover, when people could not hardly contain themselves in the midst of worship and praise, when that comes to an end, notice, and this is my text, really, chapter 31. Notice now what becomes the responses, the results, the outcome of people who have engaged in what you see described in chapter 30. Notice their first response, verse 1. Now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke down the sacred pillars and pieces, cut down the wooden images and threw the high places and the altars, and blah, 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 on and on and on. They utterly destroyed them, destroyed them all. You know what the first response to that sense of forgiveness and worship is? Repentance. They cannot believe that they have allowed so many idols to creep into their lives. They are absolutely overcome with the silliness that they see all around them. And so in response to having tasted of grace, pure, rich grace, they say, that stuff has got to go. It's got to be eliminated in its entirety. Every nook and cranny we'll look at. Because the first response to having tasted what God gives through a mediator king is I cannot understand how I could once define that as important. That's going to go. Their second response as described for you in verses 2 and 3. Hezekiah the king begins to appoint the divisions of the priests and the Levites according to the divisions uh, for the service of the priests, for burnt offerings, peace offerings to serve, to give thanks, to praise in the gate. What you have in verses 2 and 3 is Hezekiah setting up a system by which the people will be regularly engaged in worship. 
Everything's being organized and set in place so that the people of God who have tasted rich grace will continually and everlastingly and regularly worship. Once you taste that God in His grace is willing to forgive sin, then you can't get enough of that and want to be engaged in it as often as it's available to you. And then, you know, and, I, and once they're tearing down all these altars and, 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 you know, destroying idolatry and setting up these places of worship, do you remember the people back in chapter 30, verse 10, who laughed and mocked at the runners? I wonder what they thought about all of this now. What's happening in our country? What's happening to the people all around us? These people have gotten absolutely carried away with this stuff. And then in verse 4, Hezekiah, this mediator king, this one who in verse 18 of chapter 30 interceded for sinful people. This mediator king in, in verse 4 says, He commanded the people who dwelt in Israel to contribute support to the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, what you see here is a king who played the role of a mediator who understands that worship must be sustained. That a one-time mountaintop experience is wonderful and we're glad that you had it. But the thing that's intended, the thing that's needed is a lifelong, ongoing, everyday connecting with God. That's what the intention is. And so Hezekiah sets about to, to arrange things so that people will be ongoingly engaged in worship. And so what he does in verse 4 is say, support must be contributed so that worship can go on. Now gang... I guess really we've come to the point. You know, I want you to see how these people responded to the commandment of their mediator king. As soon as the commandment, verse 5, was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine and oil and honey and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. Of all the people are, and, they, and they don't have any place to put it so they gather it into heaps. Did you see that word, ladies and gentlemen? It is mentioned four times. Heaps, 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 heaps. And so Hezekiah comes over to the temple and says, where did all these heaps come from? And, and, and that's in verse uh, 9. Then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. And the high priest Azariah says, Hezekiah, you will believe it. You won't believe it, but, uh, you know, once you issue that command, these people couldn't be stopped. They gave and they gave and they gave and they kept on giving and they kept on giving to the point where we... And so Hezekiah said, well, I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to build some rooms. And so they built rooms. They're in the temple. In fact, most people would suggest that the rooms, or the storehouses that you see mentioned in Malachi 3 have their origin right here. The temple has to build some rooms on to contain the heaps. And then in verse 11 through 19, well, actually 11 through um, yeah, 18, Hezekiah appoints people who are priests to distribute all the heaps so that all the needs would be met throughout Israel. So that no need would exist in Israel and it would be faithfully administered through the people of God. 
And, and in the end of verse 18 it says, For in their faithfulness they sanctified themselves in holiness. That is, the people distributing all that came in through the people of God was distributed faithfully or by faithful men living in holiness. But all the needs of the people, both great and small, are met. And we're told in verse 20 that Hezekiah did everything with all his heart. And um, aren't we glad he did? Because we sure don't. And I have to say this about Hezekiah. Later on, he really blew it. But in this instance, you see the mediator king performing his work with all his heart. But ladies and gentlemen, every mediator king will fail except the mediator king. All mediator kings will fail us except the one that God provided in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's the one that prayed that our sin might be forgiven. He's the one that went to the cross so that blood could flow. He's the one whose life and death means life to us. He's the one who said in response to a bunch of sinful people gathering to his side, you're forgiven. What I want to know is, where are the heaps? Where are they? You see me around here? Money? Yeah. Where are the heaps? You see any heaps? Could we talk to Brent? Maybe Brent can tell us. We got some heaps. Any heaps here at Gracie Band? But ladies and gentlemen, not just money. Is there any heap of anything around here? Is there any heap of joy? Is there any heap of gladness? Praise? Worship? Repentance? Confession? Where are the heaps? Huh? Where did the heaps go? Aren't there supposed to be heaps? You know, I guess the most important word in all of John 3.16. You know that text, don't you? We can all say it together. For God sort of, kind of, halfway loved the world. No! For God, so there is a word in Ephesians one eight, and it's only in the NIV. It's not in my uh, translation. I mean, that is, it's translated a different way in the New King James. But in the New NIV, in Ephesians one eight, it says, "And God lavished." Don't you love that word? God lavished. He lavishes us with love. You know, ladies and gentlemen, God. Loves in heaps. Where are ours? Why, why are Christians so stingy? You know, listen, gentlemen, um, I made a commitment to the uh, Look campaign back a year and a half ago, and, and it was a dollar figure that I um, end them to the point of keeping that thus far. But I also made kind of a faith pledge 
You know, I, it was a dollar figure plus a faith pledge. And the faith pledge was that every unexpected dollar that came to my house, I would give 50% of it away to the Look campaign. About a month ago, I got a $600 check from our grand old uncle. And I took my $600 check and I said, well, you know, um, I've already, I mean, this is, I've already tithed on this money. I mean, it, <laughs> um, I, you know, this is income that the taxes have already been taken out of. I've already, I've already tithed this. So I really don't need to give any of this money away. And in the providence of God, I came to this text. I hope you know what happened to 50% of that $600. Why are we so stingy? Why are we looking for ways, like Jimmy Young, why are we looking for ways to get out of giving? Huh? Gang, why is joy and gladness at such low levels among the people of God? Why is worship such a low priority? Why do needs go unmet? I don't know the whole answer. But I wonder if part of the answer might be that those of us who comprise the professing Christian church I wonder, have we been to this sacrifice? Has the blood that's been drawn from Emmanuel's veins, has it gripped us at the base of our souls? Has grace not overcome us? Is the sacrifice for our sin no longer a source of our joy? If it were, I think we would be discussing Keeps May we pray. Our Father, I pray that your people will match themselves up against not what I've said, but what you said. The power is not in what I've said. The power is in what you've said. And I pray, O oh God, that again and again our souls might be drawn back to that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and that then our response might become similar to that which we've seen in these two chapters of Scripture. Might our idols become foolishness before us and might our responses be abundant and great and deep. O oh God, Underneath all of our 
carnality lies a heart that really loves you. Like the sacrifice of Christ. Allow us to see that more clearly and beautifully now. Meet us, O God, at these emblems of the sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.